My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Spicy sex that brings you to an altered state of consciousness. Sex-related headlines that make you go, um, what? And ways to start approaching and hooking up with women as a newfound bisexual person or a couple interested in playing with others. We have a lot to cover here today, and I'm so glad you're listening. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so looking forward to chatting with today's guest, Isabel Kahn, a sex-positive sex and relationship journalist, educator, and consultant who works at a sex store in Los Angeles and has written for Playboy, Broadly, In Style, Harper's Bazaar, and more. This episode is brought to us in part by The Pleasure Chest, my favorite place to buy sex toys, lube, and more awesome stuff for sexual health and pleasure. Start shopping in the privacy of your own home right now at thepleasurechest.com or visit a brick-and-mortar store in Los Angeles, New York City, or Chicago, where you can attend free workshops. And before we dive in, a quick reminder to sign up for Girl Boner Extras by email at augustmclaughlin.com. I currently send updates about once a month, all safe for work. It's a great way to be sure you don't miss out on episode extras, giveaways, events, or behind-the-scenes fun. You can also join the Girl Boner community at facebook.com forward slash my girl boner and find my girl boner books in hardcover ebook and audio formats on amazon and most anywhere books are sold now i'm so pleased to welcome isabel khan to the show isabel thank you for joining me today thank you august you have quite a radio voice why thank you <laughs> that's so kind lovely to be here i'm so thrilled that we're chatting i really admire your work i've been going through your articles. As I mentioned to you, I realized you wrote one of my favorite articles of the past year, which was in Harper's Bazaar about aging and sexuality. You interviewed one of my favorite people, Joan Price. Joan Price is a absolute powerhouse. I believe she is 75 right now. Mm -hmm. um, I keep track of her birthdays because I'm obsessed with her. Um, but she is a senior sexuality expert. Um, who was really inspired to go down this path of sex education after she had quite a transformative relationship um, with a man in her, her silver years. I think she was in her 60s, I think, when she met um, her, her husband, Robert, um, who has since passed away, but she made a promise to him that she would continue on doing the incredibly passionate and explorative and sex-positive things that they were mm -hmm. doing together um, well into their ARP-receiving years. So, yeah. I, yeah, I'm just in She's so inspiring. Awe. She, I, I laughed. I cried when I interviewed her. She's, she told a lot of her life story in the context of sexual empowerment, and she's been through all these historical changes in feminism and sex positivity, and we should get Joan Price t-shirts. I would like to get a tattoo of her on my lower back so that when I have sex with my boyfriend, Joan Price can just look him directly into the eye. Oh, my gosh. Do you know how tickled I think Joan Price is going to be? 
I cannot wait for this. Very okay. tickled. Hi, Jen. Hello, Toad. <laughs> Did you grow up in a sex-positive atmosphere? You know what? I, I did, and I am really lucky for this. And I realized that um, because of the way that I grew up and interacted with sexuality, um, it gives me a, a rare perspective um, and a lack of judgment about how people want to um, express themselves sexually. I think if sex is between consenting adults then I'm just fucking happy for you that you're doing this and like I want to know everything about it and like mm-hmm. I want to be a support role and I want to write about it and educate other people about it. But um, I think it's my responsibility as somebody who was programmed to be sex positive to share that with people and that's kind of how I got into writing. Um, so when I grew up, I don't think it was called sex positive education, like what what it's I kind got. of a new term, I think. Yeah, I don't yeah. think anybody was like, hey, um, at this elementary school, we're going to do sex-positive education for these, like, <laughs> fourth and fifth graders. But um, I do remember my teacher talking about pleasure during sex and consent and, like, you don't have to do anything that you don't want to do and it should feel good. And if it doesn't, then, like, there's no reason you need to do it. And wow. for some reason... Um, she encouraged us to go home and talk to our parents about sex. So I have this hilarious memory, which I still cringe about. But um, I went home and I was like, Mom. And she was like, what? And I was like, how many times did you have sex with Dad before you made me? <laughs> she was like, um, 27. And I was like, 27 times? And she was like, yeah, it felt really good. And I was like, ugh. (laughs) Okay, I love 700 things about that. I can't believe, first of all, it's amazing. That question is so precious that it wasn't like, how are babies made? Like, that's what you wanted to know. And then number two, that she just came up with, of course, 27. I don't know whether that means she had sex 27 times in one day. It definitely doesn't mean that they had had sex 27 (laughs) times ever because they were like, I'm sure they were freaky. She probably just wanted to give you an answer. Probably, but like... It was just never, never awkward. And, like, she was always really open about it. Um, My dad was really open. My dad's a writer, too, and he edits all of my sex articles. Um, And it's just, like, not awkward. I don't know why. That's so great. I don't know why. And I I just am happy for them that they experience (laughs) sexuality in their own ways. Or, like, I don't – we don't talk about it, like, really explicitly. Like, we're not, like, the – Like, what did you do last night? No, right. but a lot of people have that relationship, and I, I work at the pleasure chest, and a lot of people come in with their parents. So, like, a mom and a daughter will come in, and the mom will be like, this is her first vibrator, like, what's good? Or, like, the, the child will be like, my mom needs to come. What do you have? And, like, it's just natural. That's so encouraging. It can be. It can be. Like, everybody has a completely different relationship with their right. parents, and, like, I don't think this is better It doesn't need worse. to be the goal. Yeah, I guess it's refreshing to me that that can happen though. Right. That there can be this normal not normal, but just a very non-judgmental we care about people's pleasure, you know. That's what um I don't know why that's in my DNA to express, but I have been in situations growing up where um I was really slut-shamed or I was particularly like by my my friend's dad, like my friend had this evil dad who used to make fun of my dad for shopping at car- at Kmart. They were, like, really wealthy and stuff, and my dad would pick me up, and he'd be like, where'd you get that suit? Like, Kmart or something? And my dad would be like, 
yeah, fuck off. <laughs> Kmart rules. This is an ad for Kmart. Um, Go Kmart. That's terrible. And like this, this man would always ask me, like, why do you, why do you think that you need to have sex right now? I was like 15. I started having sex when I was 13 consensually, and it was like it was awesome. It was my idea. I was like, I feel like having sex now. I'm gonna do that. Um, and a my friend's parents found out about it and they would really slut shape me. They would go like, why do you need to grow up so fast? Why are you doing this? Like in, I did it in their carriage house. They had a carriage house cause they were that kind of rich family. Oh. I don't even know what a carriage house is. It's another house. It's like, you already have a mansion. And then you're I just like, pictured like Cinderella's pumpkin, that carriage that's kind of shaped like a pumpkin. Well, like sure. That's <laughs> just imagine like you're really rich and you're a billionaire and you have a, a nine bedroom house, but then you're oh, like, Oh, yeah. why don't we add another house in our back and park our BMWs in it? So obviously I was like, I'm gonna have adolescent sex in this fucking carriage house with your stupid BMWs. Take off my Kmart <laughs> outfit and get down and busy. Yeah. And so that was my big like fuck you, asshole rich parents. And, um, Do you remember how you responded to them when they said, why are you doing this? Um, yeah, I was just like, I don't know, because I want to. And I don't know, it just made me feel weird. And people would write, like, Isabelle's like a slut, like, on the back of the bus. Because I was the first person that had sex, like, that I knew. Um, how did you feel when you saw those messages? Did you? Uh, I was like, my brain was like, I'm getting laid. <laughs> <laughs> So I would sit like <laughs> say whatever you want, dude. I I have a good time. Yeah, like this boy came up to me and he was like, "You're a slut," and I was like, "At least I'm having sex, you dingus!" Like, <laughs> like I don't know. I just never. I chose not to be um, insulted. I was like, "This is an empowering term." So I would sit behind the thing on the bus. I, that was my seat. I was like, "Yeah, I guess I'm a slut." Here's my slut sheet. Yeah, S- slut seat. That's hard to say. Slut sheet. There you go. Slut sheets. Slut, slut sheets. Say that 10,000 times fast. <laughs> so at what point did you know that you wanted to pursue sex writing? Um, so I never consciously thought about it. I wanted to be a doctor. I love diseases and I really love bodies. So I studied physiology and public health. And I was like, I'm going to study disease. I'm going to cut people open and remove things and rearrange them. And then I realized that I am not that sociopathic. <laughs> and, um, I would probably be a terrible clinician. Um but I retained the interest in anatomy and, and bodies and health and stuff. Um, so randomly, I became friends with some people who had a magazine in Colorado, where I'm from. Um, and out of nowhere, I was like, hey, can I do, um, can I write for your magazine? And they were like, sure, what do you want to write? And I was like, uh, a sex column. And they were like, okay. And I had no writing experience. Um, it was the only thing I was ever good at in school. Like, I was sucked at math. I sucked at, like, anything that I needed to do to get into medical school. Um, but I was great at writing. And so I was like, oh, I guess I can do that. So I just started doing that. And it turned into a journalism thing. And it was one of those things where one day you realize, like, this is the thing that I do, apparently. Yeah, so. I, I relate to that. Was your first article, do you remember what it was about? No, but it was very immature and adolescent because I think I started doing this when I was like 18 or something. And like college boys would write in and ask questions. And I didn't have the experience to be um, completely nuanced and sex positive in my my responses. Like I think I, I didn't take it as seriously. So it was probably something immature like 
how do I make my girlfriend come? And then I would just make fun of him and be like, you're an idiot. Here's how you make a girl come. <laughs> it was probably like, like today I would be very embarrassed to Are you kind of glad that it wasn't like blasted all over the internet? People can find it now. <laughs> um, You might be able to find some of them. So just go ahead and don't look for that. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> idea. I love it. I love it. So you educate and write about all different kinds of topics and... I believe you went to a conference recently related to BDSM, didn't you? I do do um, a lot of work with um, kink and BDSM. I do um, this sex ed pop-up called Eating Out with my friend Bryn, who is a chef. Um, And yesterday we had like a BDSM brunch. Um, So we had my mentor, um, Jamila Dawson, who is a sex therapist and a kink educator. She did like a spanking demonstration and an impact play workshop. Um, And I did like a sensation exercise. And then we had brunch with a bunch of people. Fun. So we do that. And then at the Pleasure Chest, I teach about kink sometimes too. And mostly I just write about it. That's awesome. So the altered states that people can get to, there's been some interesting research about it. How would you just sort of loosely define that concept? Um, So BDSM and kink is a good way to put yourself in the same mindset and physical um, experience as runner's high, um, mindfulness, meditation, um, other type, or even some kind of like hallucinatory effects. Mm. Um, when you practice BDSM, depending on what your role is as a top or a bottom, your brain changes um, its pattern of blood flow and it creates different effects depending on what your role is. So if you are bottoming, um, there's something called either subspace or bottom space, depending on like what you're what you're doing um, in your scene and who who you're embodying. Um, but the way that your brain reroutes the blood and the the majority of its focus um, makes you feel something akin to runner's high. So you can get giddy, um, you can feel kind of like disoriented, you can lose track of time. Um, some people feel like spinny. Um, some people just kind of like collapse and like laugh a little bit like that. Um, and it's a very distinct state that happens in your brain. Um, and in that state, it can be difficult to make decisions. Um, so a lot of the times it's good to have like an experienced top to like help you um, navigate consent and stuff because you can't always make the most informed decisions when you feel a little bit high like that. Um, on the other hand, top space is the the reverse effect. Um, again, another um, unique pattern of blood flow. And that tends to make people feel laser focused, um, like they can take greater risks. Um, they t- It's kind of like the difference between taking like a lot of weed or a lot of Adderall. Like you feel um, top, top space is more like focus, um, energy, um, better decision making you feel kind of like a laser as opposed to like a a mush (laughs) (laughs) as opposed to a mush I love that how different would these states be from just other kinds of sex I feel like I've experienced most of what these states can be and in sexual experiences that might not necessarily be considered Mm -hmm. kinky so um, you can experience these things through almost anything, and it's just that kink in particular and BDSM is a more direct route to get there. Um, but you can absolutely have like a euphoric or dissociative experience from 
um, non-kinky sex or like vanilla sex where your body feels and your mind feels like you're in another place. Um, and a lot of the time it's because of the endorphins. Um, but you don't need to be physically touched for these altered states to happen. Um, so if you practice mind fuck, which is more of like a psychological manipulation, you can still um, attain bottom or top space. It's more um, the the energy that is exchanged in a power exchange or these um, different, different roles um, that can create these alternate patterns of blood flow in the brain. So mind fuck would be sort of like thinkgasms. Is it your fantasizing but not actually acting on them um sometimes that can be a part of it it's more um like a consensual manipulation and like a lot of it takes place as like the top will like make the bottom think that something is going to happen and they'll like come up behind them and like like crack a whip or something but not actually touch them you know like they take them through like a psychological um questioning but it happens very differently like depending on what the scene is that's so interesting. If somebody wants to experience this and they haven't, what would be a good first step or resource? Um, so I would look. So this comes from Brad Segarin. Um, he runs something called the Science of BDSM um, Research Laboratory. It's out of the University of Northern Illinois. Um, so he is the person that's doing the majority of this research, and I would definitely check out some of the the articles that he's done and the studies that he's had published. Um, there was a big media frenzy of all of his work in 2016 um, that kind of re- reiterates all of his findings. So you could always just type in, like, I would do BDSM altered states in Google or, or something. But if you want to practice it on your own, um, I think the most important thing is to have um, a consensual and um, a consensual space where you can be trusting and intimate with a partner. Um, and it's usually kind of when you are transcending whatever normative sex is to you so if you tend to have like vanilla sex um trying something new that gets you out of your comfort zone um is a good step to do that but i also want to say like not everybody who practices bdsm you don't just switch into an altered state um you don't just dissociate or quote unquote like hallucinate or get into top space it doesn't happen all the time even when you're an experienced practitioner um but it is a fun thing to play with with somebody that you that you really trust and you can let yourself go with and you know what each other's boundaries are um, because the safer that you feel, the farther you can push. And that is going to um, make your brain more likely to go into an altered state. I love that you brought up Brad Segarin because when I was researching the topic for this episode, his studies came up mm-hmm. and he has a quote that I read that said, the idea that the rest of the world drops away and someone is completely focused on what they're doing. And the flow state is similar and familiar to pro athletes, as you were saying, prolific novelists, mm-hmm. musicians, anyone who loses themselves in activity they're extremely good at. Mm-hmm. So that's really befitting. When you're writing about whether it's Brad Zagarin's research or other studies, what are some of the challenges that you face when trying to, you know, there's there's kind of the pressure I think sometimes for for we writers to be like clickbait friendly, mm-hmm. right? But then also to provide this really comprehensive information. Um, so I think the the challenge is that 
sex does not fit into a clickbait article unless you force it to. So as a journalist, I am constantly confronted with quotes and sources where the main point is really like, I don't fucking know is the answer. Like everybody is so different when it comes to sex and everybody is so unbelievably idiosyncratic in their relationships and their desires that to make that into a really honest um, portrayal of something is challenging. It's more convenient often, and this is the problem with sex journalism, um, I think, to package people's experiences into a tidy box. And I'll mm-hmm. give you, can I give you an example? Please, yes. Okay, so um, I got an email from Playboy last night, and I, I really like Playboy. I've, I've written for them before, and I think they're a fantastic publication, but they sent out um, an email last night with some articles, and the title of one was um, give the gift of anal sex this Christmas or something similar. I'm sorry if I'm butchering that, but it was something about like this Christmas, the ultimate gift is anal. And that's a, a really good example of trying to capitalize on the zeitgeist of a holiday and forcing a narrative into something that doesn't really accurately portray people's experiences. And the reason why I say that is because when you frame Something like anal as something that should be given as a gift once a year on a very specific day, you make it seem like this is something to be given in a very specific circumstance and not enjoyed year-round. Or what does it make you if you're somebody who gives this gift weekly? Or who doesn't enjoy it. Exactly. Or you can't experience it maybe because they have... A, a bowel issue. You know, there's so many things that 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 one phrase is so stigmatizing and misleading. Okay, so the article quotes like a, a knowledgeable and a qualified expert, and it has a lot of really great tips for anal sex. But when you look at the headline, it makes it seem like it's just something to be done mm-hmm. once. When this writer is really giving you something right. to enjoy it any time, like these are tips that you can use. Any day of the year. And one of the problems is so many people stop at the headline. So if you see the headline and you just go, oh, I saw this on Facebook, or maybe you save it to read sometime, but you just remember that headline, one that has driven me crazy forever so much that I've I've written about this um, a few places. It's in my book, too. Let me find it here. Is the headline is orgasm eludes most women. And it's on an ABC News website, and it's so misleading. And then you go to the article, and it says about 75% of all women never reach orgasm from intercourse alone, according to new research, and it's not linked to any study. And then later in the article, you get to a place where it starts talking about some research, and this particular study only included 100 people. And doesn't talk about are they cisgender, you know, like all these different things. Mm -hmm. And one thing that bothers me about that is I really feel that so much of what we believe about sexuality can be self-fulfilling. So if we believe, oh, you know, I'm a woman, so I probably won't orgasm, it can kind of get to you. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the media and the way that sex is portrayed in the media is really responsible for that. And again, it's because of the tidy packaging of narratives. And 
absolutely things are self-fulfilling. I think I read a statistic that was like two-thirds of people turn to the media for um, information and education about sex. Um, and that makes it so that people who write about sex have a responsibility to portray sex accurately and empathetically and um, in an encompassing way that speaks to many people's experience. But the problem is that we don't because we have magazines with particular voices and narratives to think about. Um, And really, if we were all as accurate about portraying sexuality as sex actually is diverse, then articles would suck. (laughs) Like, the conclusion of them wouldn't be so easily packaged. It would really be like, do whatever works for you. Because the real answer is, like, there's no such thing as normal. Mm -hmm. It's about what is normal for you personally. Yes. And... We wouldn't have these lists, like seven ways to please your man, seven like anal sex tips to make you like anal when before you hated it. (laughs) Like it's really like so nuanced. And I think sex media and sex journalism um, could do a better service to the public by talking more about the individuality of people's sex experiences than trying to generalize about men and women and like cis versus trans like we're so much more alike than we are different um and it just perpetuates these narratives of othering yeah and it creates situations where like if you say you're a man and you are reading all of these articles on GQ or Esquire about like what women want. What do women want you to wear? How do women want you to treat them in bed? And then suddenly you meet a woman who doesn't fit into that definition. Then you get a concept in your mind, um, which is kind of like the the reader question that you get. The women are lying to you. They're being dishonest because they don't match up with the stereotyped version that some media outlets paint about women or men, or gay people, or bi people, or trans people, or fat people, or skinny, or old. You know, like, people are just really individual. And I I hope that as a journalist, what I can bring to the table is the constant acknowledgement of that. Yes, and um, you do such a good job of that. It's one of the things I loved about your Harper's Bazaar article. It's Your work is written in a very, I think, very responsible way, where you are inclusive and also you talk about all of the not all you can't fit all the nuances in one particular thing but you make that very evident I think there is a way to do this and to to help people I love that you brought up the gender stereotyping too because that that makes me a little nutty but it's it is still very prevalent and we do have a, a relevant listener question this is from Max who wrote this I'm a single male in the San Diego area and I meet quite a lot of women via country line dancing and two-stepping Although I easily create body chemistry with the girls I teach to dance, I rarely ask for their numbers. I'm a regular, and I hate the whole player concept, so I only pursue a girl if she believes she's sincere in wanting to date me. I don't do the one-night stand, which I easily could do, by the way, but I don't want that kind of relationship. My question is, why, oh why, do women give me their phone number, yet never call me back to go on a date? We clearly had chemistry. They're single. They told me they wanted to see me again. Can you please explain this to me? It's caused me to stop dancing and meeting new girls because I feel women are being dishonest despite me being sincere with them. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Max, 
you know, I really appreciate your honesty and sharing your dilemma because, you know, I don't think men often express enough their own frustrations and um, challenges when it comes to dating and that it's important that women recognize, right, that men like yourself are actually very much interested in relationship um, because I hear that so often in my practice, right, that it feels like the good ones are all gone and uh, no one's interested in relationship anymore. They're only interested in the casual hookup. And I think as you're expressing, and I work with a lot of men who, like yourself, really are um, interested in a long-term relationship and the intimacy and the sexual expression of that. And so I 100% understand and agree with the frustration um, because like you said, in the moment, experientially, it feels like there's a connection, there's chemistry. And so when, if they give you their number, understandably, completely confusing, frustrating, and annoying that they're not responding back to you. And so you know, I, I really can't mind read and none of us ever can. I guess there's a part of me that just sort of wonders, you know, when you first reach out to them, you know, are you calling them or are you sending a text? And is it sort of kind of small talk and sort of chatty or are you being specific and sort of inviting um, her out on sort of a date that you'd love to go on or an event that you're really looking forward to and you'd like to her to come along? So I think that's one piece that's not clear in your um, question is, and if it's the same or if it's different, obviously, by the woman that you've met, but what is the interaction like when you reach out to them, when they've given you your number? Um, and do they never respond? Is it the way that you connect or what you're asking? And that's something certainly I think you can play with, right? Um, you know, asking a direct question, like say, Hey, love seeing you. How's this Tuesday or Thursday night? Um, you know, again, being really specific or even more specific, if there's a specific event or function you'd love to go and you think it'd be great to take her to. Um, which is very different than the potential reaching out and sort of, the small talk. So again, I would definitely say, think about when you reach out to her first, sort of, are you specific, sort of, in a sense, do you leave a call to action? Or are you being more vague, in a sense, hedging your bets? Um, because I think, you know, in general, a turn on is feeling one and desired. And so I think the more specific we can be, in many ways, the better. But that being said, listen, I don't want you to, it sounds like, understandably, having gotten so frustrated, um, it has unfortunately led to your changing your behavior, right? I'm hearing you saying that you're stopping, you've stopped dancing and meeting new girls because you're feeling women being dishonest. And so listen, when and if line dancing and two-stepping is a passion of yours, you know what, even when and if you're not getting the responses from women that you'd like, pursue your passion. Don't let them steal or take that away from you um, on any level. And then I guess another part of me is also saying, you know, listen, that might understandably be uh, an ideal way to meet women because it's in life and in person, but also to consider all the online and dating apps, right? That I'm not sure whether sort of dancing is sort of your preferred way of meeting women and engaging interest in chemistry, which again, as I completely understand, it makes sense. But I also think that honestly, you know, 2018, almost 2019, the reality is so many men and women are meeting partners online. So I'd also say, listen, 
up your online game and certainly put time and energy into uh, dating apps in that regard to see whether or not that leads to a greater response and potentially next dates and an opportunity for your next relationship. So definitely what I'm saying is, listen, I can't mind you to know why women haven't been responsive. I certainly can say if they give you your number, you felt the chemistry, you know, maybe think about what is your reaction or response in that next text being very clear um, and specific about what you'd like to do next. And also just don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Certainly don't give up something you love. And at the same time, think about there's many other ways to meet women. Um, and you definitely want to like leave no stone unturned. So as always, we'd love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I always love your insight. Isabel, what was your first reaction when you heard Max's question? So I think this is a, a interesting question that piggybacks on what we were just talking about because um, – this person has an idea of what honesty is, and I'm wondering where that comes from. But I just want to come out here with, I don't know what's like an unpopular opinion or not, but I think that these women that are quote-unquote ghosting him, like that's what they're doing. He doesn't name that they're ghosting them, but they're not calling him back. That's a form of honesty. And I believe in ghosting as a item of nonverbal communication. Like these people are communicating by not communicating. If somebody wants to see you, they will respond to you. Even if they're busy and they're like, hey, like I can't I can't see you this month. Like everyone I know died and I like I'm inventing a new internet, can't hang out. <laughs> like if you care about seeing somebody again, then you make it happen or you follow up usually. Of course, nothing is universal at all. But I think that, like, for people in general that are concerned in their dating lives, like, why am I not getting a call back? Like, I thought that this was one way. They are doing the exact same thing that they would if they called you back and said, look, dude, I don't want to see you. That's a really interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing that. I hadn't heard of, I've never heard anyone say that ghosting is a really honest response, but it, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's really interesting. I One thing that struck me was that I think of myself, like say in my early to mid 20s, occasionally I would give my phone number or take a phone number from somebody to get out of the communication for you know, sure to just like move on because if you're feeling even if you might have a little bit of chemistry that doesn't necessarily mean that oh I want to like hang out with you or have sex or go on a date or whatever no so sometimes you're just trying to get out of the situation and you have no intention of following up or you meet somebody the next day and you're not interested or whatever but what you just said really showed me that what I was doing was being honest to myself yeah, and that's that's so valid. As two strangers whose only connection is that you, you are contacts in each other's phone, you don't owe that other person anything. You've never hung out. You're not friends. You're not even acquaintances. You're a contact. You are some pixels on, like, an iPhone screen. So how much do you owe somebody to respectfully let them down when you're, what you're really doing is the exact same thing. So with this person, 
and then like getting phone numbers if the woman that he is interested in talking to is just like you know i don't actually want to give you my phone number at all that's really not very different than just never calling back except for in the moment for the woman it's probably a lot safer and less awkward to just be like uh, okay here's my number with every intention of just never calling back yeah. and i'm sure as many people have been in this situation like we're socialized not to reject and insult other people particularly femme people are often socialized not to hurt the tender feelings of people who are masculine. And yeah. it's scary sometimes when we do. And when we do, and when we do the honest thing, which is like, hey, I actually don't want to see you, even though we were just grinding on the dance floor and you, we were, you like swing danced me and my butt was in your face. Like, if we say like, nah, I'm good, then we are often insulted. We, we are met with anger. I've been in a lot of situations where I've given somebody the wrong number and they've called that wrong number in front of me and been like, why didn't you give me your right number? Like, is this not you? Are you trying to fuck with me? Like, uh, that's, like, scary. It is, yeah. And we have every right, as you said, to take care of ourselves, make whatever decision we need to, to, you know, because as you said, if you are, we've all learned these kind of gender roles, you know, and if this person is feeling very rejected and we don't know that person so we don't know how they're going to respond how do we know that we're safe i don't know i mean like how many times have you been in a situation where you've done the, the quote unquote honest thing and you're like no dude and someone's like fine you're not hot anyway and you're like you know so i would rather than you just throw some dumb insult that's not true my way i would rather just give you my number and be like ah, delete 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 because yeah. I'm telling you the exact same thing either and way. And you might change your mind, too, the next day. It's also possible that somebody gives you a number and they're thinking, yeah, maybe let's or give me your number because, yeah, let's let's get together sometime. And then the next day they just go, oh, I don't want to. That's also totally valid. That totally is, too. So I don't think that these women are being dishonest at all. I think that this person is just experiencing a side effect of dating, which is that it sucks. <laughs> it sucks to date and yeah. like it's really awesome that he's putting himself out there mm -hmm. um, and he's trying to make these connections and like what you will invariably be met with is some rejection yeah and I'm sorry that like it's not working out with these people um, but it's also good to know that they are exercising their right to do yes. that and like don't give up listener like keep trying like maybe meet some people um, in a space that's not dancing because that can be like a a confusing um, signal. So when, when you're dancing with somebody and that's like physical and you have like dance floor chemistry, it's not always the same as like real life chemistry. Like a lot of the times you just want to like, I don't know, like let loose and like grind on somebody or you get drunk and you kind of like start like you dance with somebody, but it's more of a physical exchange than like a let's take this to the marriage court, you know? <laughs> yeah. You, know? you didn't really get to know the person at all. No. And like this person is saying that it's caused him to stop dancing because he was experiencing rejection. And like, I don't think you ever need to stop dancing. Do what you love and focus on enjoying yourself when you go out dancing and just have a good time and see what happens, but also know that you might be able to create um, different chemistry in other spaces where the, the lines aren't blurred. Completely, where you can have a conversation and sit yeah. down and chat with someone. Yeah, that's really awesome. So I've done a couple episodes recently and over the years on people, you know, getting into um, less conventional relationships or maybe they're 
curious about, you know, I, I did an episode um, with the founder of the Skirt Club for Bi Curious Women getting out there for the first time. And I've had a smattering of questions from people who want to know, like, what's the first step? Because they might be interested, but actually putting yourself out there, as you were just saying, can be pretty challenging. So what about for somebody who wants to either start dating women or maybe a couple who wants to start playing with, you know, somebody outside the relationship? What would you advise? What are some good starter tips? Um, so this is me. Hello. I am the person that you speak of. Um, so this this past year, I've recently become very attracted to women. And it's been really surprising to me because um, in the past, that always seemed like something that I wished that I was. Like, I was like, oh, it seems fun to be into, like, a lot of people. But, like, genuinely, I was just like, I just don't feel that. Um, and maybe one day I will. And then one day I just woke up and was like, oh, my God, like, girls are so hot. Aww. It was so funny. And that means approaching women. And initially that was really um, frightening for me because I'd never wanted to be part of the system that um, objectifies or oppresses or makes women uncomfortable. Being somebody who has been on the receiving end of that um, is not always fun. And sometimes you just want to live in the world without being, like, chased, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've, I've had difficulty like being the one who initiates anything like that um but then I had this realization if I'm going to be the person that is talking to women like I might as well do it in the most respectful way that I know how because I that you wish you had been approached totally so I'll give you an example and this might be helpful for your your listeners um a long time ago I was at a party and I met this girl and she was really nice and we were just talking and um we, I would say we were talking for about an hour and a half or two in like a group of people. So it wasn't like she just walked up to me. It was like we had established a rapport. And I was like, this girl is cool. And at this time, I wasn't really into women. So I thought I was just talking to somebody. Um, retrospectively, you were very attractive. <laughs> talking to past Isabel. <laughs> um, but she was like, hey, like I have, a, I have a question for you. And I was like, what's up? And she was like, um, my boyfriend and I think you're very attractive. And I was wondering if you would be interested in going home with us, but I don't know what your relationship situation is or if you're even into that at all. So feel free to say no. Um, but yeah, like, would you be into that? And it was so respectful how she asked me. She she said she didn't know what my relationship was. She wasn't making an assumption about my my sexual orientation or my relationships, my relationship status. And she gave me an out. She was like, I like this is fine if you say no, like this isn't for everybody, and it it was like so not awkward. And I like, at the time I hadn't negotiated that with my boyfriend, so I was like, I have a boyfriend. Like, thank you so much for asking. Aww, and like, it yeah. was just nice, like a civil, responsible, kind conversation. Yeah, and she wasn't like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? You're not hot anyway. <laughs> yeah, she was like, oh, like I totally get it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And like, you can tell from the rest of the conversation that. Maybe there was, like, a little dejection there. But that's, like, also just part of putting yourself out there. So I would say, like, for anybody who's, like, interested in, like, approaching somebody as, like, a newly bisexual person or, like, um, for threesomes, I would say do it after talking to them for a little bit so you're not making them feel like you've just been selected as a unicorn without anybody, like, knowing. And just a physical 
body. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, which is fine. Like, I'm fine with being a physical body, but I don't like when people assume that I am a great physical body when they don't know. I could be horrible. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Like, I like to I like to establish some rapport with somebody, even when the situation is clearly just sexual. I I don't don't need to be in a relationship with somebody at all. Right. But it's nice to like have an idea who you're working with. Yeah. And then you can establish like boundaries too because you've already established that this person is somebody that you can communicate with. So if you're looking for a third or you're looking for like you're a new person that you've never like um, talked to before, I would definitely say talk to them for a little bit to see if they're even somebody that you want to go there with. Um, don't make any assumption about their life, their orientation, their gender identity. Um, and definitely give them an out and say, this doesn't matter to me one way or another. I just thought I would ask you. It's totally fine um, if not. Um, and then move on because it's everybody's right to reject or accept. Yeah. And that's just part of being a person interested in other people. Yeah. And so speak, say those words and mean them. Yeah. And really, yeah. like, no is a beautiful thing to hear. And, like, I talk about this a lot when it comes to, um, like, the caller, like, men who feel rejected. Um, no is such an empowering thing because what you just did is you gave somebody the opportunity to grant or take away their consent. And in this culture, in this time, that's, like, a beautiful moment you are empowering somebody else to make a decision and even if that decision doesn't reflect on you the way you wanted it to um you're making somebody feel like they have a choice in the world that's so beautiful and thanking the person for setting their boundaries is an awesome thing whether it's in a sexual context or not but when someone tells me no i'm not going to go to this event with you because i just don't feel comfortable in that scenario i feel so grateful that they were able to express their honest feeling oh yeah isn't that great when someone's just like no it's not for me yeah i'm not into it you know you don't have to do this whole oh i don't know but maybe um 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 um," and and apologize over and over again for i'm sorry that i'm uncomfortable in that situation no i i care about that person obviously if i'm inviting them to something and i would i would much rather somebody take care of themselves than feel pressured to come just because they feel obligated and are trying to be quote nice right Absolutely. You don't want anybody to do anything that they don't want to do. And it's kind of like really endearing when somebody just flexes their preference at you. You're Mm -hmm. like, I have a friend who hates karaoke. And I was like, do you want to like come do karaoke? And she's just like, nah, hate it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. I just like when people are direct like that. Yeah. That's so cool. That's so cool. And once you get a yes, Mm -hmm. would you say the first experience, do you have any insight on that because I think there could be some level of anxiety of just it being a new thing from my own experience I would say definitely have discussions beforehand if you are seeing somebody else about what your limits and your boundaries are and what feels like delicious about being with somebody else and what feels scary um and definitely give yourself time and space to know that although you may feel a certain way as you discuss things with your partner or you reflect on them yourself, it's totally possible for those things to change at any time, even during the interaction that you thought that you wanted. Um, so I would just be really, really gentle with yourself and and know that things can change and that's fine and try to have a, um, some communication lines set up there. Yeah. Would you tell the person that this is a new thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't want to come off as like some experienced 
like threesome person because I'm not. Right. Um, definitely communicating with your your current partner and the the new partner as much as you can about um, why is this fun to you? Why is this scary? Do we have any limits or boundaries? And then also making space to know that even when you invite somebody in and it's something that you both want, um, the desires for that can change at any time. And how can you set up a space um, where you can honor ch- feelings as they change? So I like, you know, that hasn't hasn't happened to me. So like I'm sure that there are, are listeners who have more experience with that. But I think it's all about just getting in touch with what you're excited to explore and what is scary and um making sure everybody is on the same page. So it's like, it's one of those questions. Communication is the answer to everything. It really is so important though. Yeah, yeah. I love that very much. So could you tell people where they can learn more about you and follow along on your Yeah. So um you can look at my website. It's isabelcon.com. Um, and I also have a very minimal social media presence because I'm terrified of the internet. But you can find me on Instagram at Dear Ibi. Do you want me to spell it? Yeah. Okay, it's D E A R I B B Y. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe if you haven't on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or iHeart radio and while you're there please consider leaving a rating and review it really helps us keep things going thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful girl boner embracing week girl boner radio is owned operated and executively produced by me august mclaughlin with technical producer and audio extraordinaire mackenzie mazel as part of the period podcast network an affiliate of starburns industries Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.